If you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 4. We are entering into another section of the debate, the argument of God's New Testament lawyer, the Apostle Paul, as we address a central characteristic of God's nature, and every child of God should know it by heart, it is his righteousness. God is a righteous God. That's the problem with humanity. God is righteous, and we are not. And, uh, but God cares enough in his righteousness to argue with you that you need to come and reason together with God. Because since your sins are as red as scarlet, they can be white as snow. A profound overture on the part of God to spend so much time with, with sinners. He's a good God, is he not? The Pilgrim's Progress through Romans is what we're dealing with. And today's subtitle is The Two Witnesses for God's Righteousness. The Two Witnesses for God's Righteousness. If you've read the book of Romans, you know that Paul is ending the beginning of a, an argument with his auditors, both Jews and Gentiles at this point, largely Jews, but not exclusively Jews. And his opening arguments have been settled in chapters one, two, and three, that God is righteous to show mercy and he is righteous to judge in that in his showing righteousness or mercy rather, versus justice. It is not on the merits of some people being better than others and therefore God showing mercy and others being inferior to others and therefore God showing justice. God shows mercy because he wants to show mercy. And if you and I happen to obtain it by his mercy, it was on the grounds of acts of righteousness. This is where the gospel is a scandal to many who don't understand the necessity of a stand-in righteousness. I've taught you that term, have I not? Don't ever forget it. The reason you stand before God as righteous is because of a stand-in righteousness. You will never stand before God righteous on your own. And if you're a Christian, you have to really learn the gospel in a way in which you can explain the righteousness that God declares that I am is only in him. And then we have the blessed opportunity to proclaim and explain and expound the gospel in certain ways. Paul's brilliant testimony uh, forthcoming is concerning the life of Abraham and the life of David, their witness, their testimony to both Jews and Gentiles. Abraham happens to be the twice millennial father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is really the one on trial here because it was the exploits of Christ that the world has come to know that God declares that without him, you cannot have a relationship with God. It is on the grounds of Christ's exploits that the whole world is confronted with a pathway to glory exclusively through him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. 
Those are really fighting words for human beings who actually think that they merit something worthy of a conversation with God. What Jesus said in representation and in honor of his father was, you cannot get to God apart from me. Those are profoundly narrow, exclusive terms, are they not? And they should put all of us on, uh, on watch as to why. Again, I use the term uh, the twice millennial father of Jesus in Abraham. He's going to be the first witness taking the stand here in a moment. So I do really want you to pay attention to the discourse. But then he's, Paul is going to call up another witness. This happens to be the once millennial father of Jesus, Jesus in who? David. So Abraham is 2,000 years older than Jesus. David is 1,000 years older than Jesus. And when you meet, read Matthew's gospel carefully, Matthew gives the genealogy of Abraham, David, and Jesus because the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of the incarnational journey of Jesus and the Davidic covenant is the consummation of his incarnation as the king of Zion sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over the world for the glory of God and for the good of human beings who may have the privilege of entering into what we call the true Zion. Zion is the kingdom of God and Christ is God's king seated at his right hand. This is what Paul will argue and what Paul really would have us to understand about the stand in righteousness of Christ is that this is that righteousness which is in Christ by which God is one glorified. God alone is glorified by Christ's righteousness. But secondly, and this is important to Paul's argument, that righteousness destroys human boasting. And this is the way that the apostle left off in chapter three as he argued his case brilliantly for God's right to save and damn. Listen to what he says over in verse 27. Where is boasting? Chapter three, 27. It is excluded. By what law? Is it the law of works? No, because the law of works is itself a ground for boasting. But the gospel excludes boasting. On what grounds? The law of faith. That concept needs to be embraced by the child of God, too, because Paul is using a play on words as brilliant as he is, because often we actually look at the term law as antithetical to faith. And yet he's using it in a construct by which he's saying is there is a there is an ethic. There is a legal protocol. There is a moral framework for the law of faith. I totally get that. I totally get that. You should as well, because faith is not lawless. Faith is not a doctrine that says I come to God any kind of way and God loves me any kind of way. And then God leaves me any kind of way. I'm just walking with them by faith. No, faith, as Paul will argue, establishes the law of God so that the outcome of a proper interpretation of law is that men and women must trust God. 
That's going to be his argument and what he's saying to the Jewish people and to you and I, as he's going to make that clear by verse 11, is that if you're going to boast in Abraham, now you know the apostle is taking up the argument of Jesus himself because all the Pharisees ever said to Jesus was that we be Abraham's seed. And I guess Jesus is taking up from the uh, from his cousin, John the Baptist, because that's exactly what they were saying to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three. And John said, do not say to me that you are Abraham's seed when you're not coming through Jesus, because God is able to make these stones stand up and give God glory for his creating them. Right. So it's important for you and I, as we lay down a foundation today to understand what it means to defend and declare the gospel on the grounds of righteousness. Don't forget that word. The reason why it slips off of the tongue and the mind of you and I is because we are by nature not righteous. And we have a difficult time associating with righteousness beyond our own sliding skill. You know how we do. We love to think that we're all right. When most of the time we're not, I'm just here to tell you, you ain't all right. You love to think you are, but you're not. And you're operating out of a sliding scale. Well, your sliding scale is fine, but it won't work with God. And you and I can never use a sliding scale to justify the claims of the gospel in the area of terms like faith or in terms like grace or in terms like love. Did y'all hear those three? I want you to wrestle with them. You'll hear this in a Tuesday, Friday study because people love to talk about the love of God. And then frequently it's offered uh, in the context of misunderstanding that God's love is also a lawful love. It never violates God's law. Don't tell me you love, but at the same time, uh, you, you completely neglect the content of love, the expression of love, the framework of love. And don't tell me you have faith when you completely disregard the propositions of faith in the scripture that are grounded by God's ethical, moral right to tell you to believe him when he has demonstrated his righteousness. Am I making some sense? And don't distort grace either. People love to distort grace. Grace is the idea that just God just gives me and loves me and, 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 and adores me no matter what I am. You've heard it everywhere all the time. The problem is when you read your Bible, you, uh, you, you become uncomfortable because your Bible does not depict any three of these terms that way. So then what you have to kind of have is an, a Bible-less gospel, which is another gospel. And that's because we don't know how to hold categories in harmony, in unity, in priority to see that God is not canceling out one for the other. He may be subordinating one for the other. He may be organizing these different doctrinal truths. We call this antinomy in philosophy to laws. Okay, did y'all get that new term? I know, I know you didn't come to church for that, but It's an antinomy. Antinomies are when two different laws independently don't seem to have anything to do with each other. They may even seem to be contradictory to each other until you organize them. And that's what Paul is doing here, as he says over in verse 31. Listen to what he says in verse 31. Do we, uh, chapter 3, verse 31, do we then make void the law through what? Hear what I'm saying? You see what he's saying? If we say that we are people of faith. Are we therefore by that faith making void the law? What is the answer? The answer is no. Now watch what he says. This is going to launch us into our discourse. No, the people of God alone establish the law on the grounds of faith. Did you see that? 
And the reason you're not excited about it is because you don't understand it. And we're getting ready to work it through. It becomes easy as a syllogism. It becomes easy as a syllogism. I am a sinner. God is righteous. When I trust God, then I obtain his righteousness apart from anything that I do. When I trust God, it is proxy for the obedience that God accomplished on my behalf to become meritorious for me to be declared righteous. In other words, the law is not established ever by anyone that abandons the principle of faith and then seeks to do it by their own good works. Are you hearing me? Are y'all hearing me? You do not establish the law. If you say, you know what? I don't need that stand in righteousness called Jesus. I can do this on my own. And the reality is we've already heard what Paul argued. He has concluded all in unbelief in order that he might have mercy on all. Are you guys getting the argument? All right, let's hear something of Paul's discourse around Father Abraham. Point number one in your outline opens up with verses one through three. I love this chapter four. He says, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, uh, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? What shall you and I say then since Abraham is the rock bottom foundation and model of the people of God? He's called the father of the faithful. What can we say about Abraham as to what he found in his relationship with God? Did he find that God approved of him because of the merits of his own work? Or did he find that God called him to the same law of faith that Paul is talking to us about now? So let's deconstruct this verse and understand it really in a most appropriate way. I'm going to give you three sub points around this. This does not explicate, this does not expound this verse fully at all. We just don't have time for it. When verse one says, what shall we say then? This here is a clause that is called a connecting clause. What shall we say then in relationship to everything I have said to us from chapter one up to this verse? Since I've given you a conclusion as to what God requires, what God desires, what God seeks, what God gives in terms of the law of faith, what shall we conclude then in relationship to Father Abraham? Since you Jewish people, I'm talking the context of Jesus day, always like to say we be Abraham's seed. And Jesus said, if you're Abraham's seed, you do what Abraham did. You'd, You'd walk like Abraham walked. And let's find out how Abraham walked. The text says, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? The first thing that we might understand about this idea has found. I want to draw it home. The word literally means to discover. What has Abraham discovered? What has Abraham had made manifest to him? What what has been revealed to Abraham? The idea found there is ambiguous in this sense. You and I might think that when someone finds something, they sought after it. When someone finds something, they were looking for it. When someone finds something, they were arduously in pursuit of it and go, aha, I found it. Really, the text is saying, what did Abraham discover? Not when he found it, but when God found Abraham. Because that's the way the scriptures work. Abraham discovered three critical doctrinal truths. First and foremost, sub point A, he found that he was called of God. Do y'all see that? Abraham discovered that God was calling him. 
Now, I love this because this takes us all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 1 and 2. Just pull verse 1 up. I just want you to understand, when you and I read about Abraham, we don't know much about him other than that he was a pagan. He worshiped the moon god. He was into Mesopotamian gods because he came from Ur of the Chaldees. He was an African, quite frankly speaking. Um, and, and, and as a consequence, he didn't know God from the man on the, no pun intended, but he worshiped the moon. They did. This is, these were pagans. All right, I'm going to play the dozens. Your daddy was a pagan. It's a beautiful thing, quite frankly, because if you actually understand what we call the teleological uh, development of scripture, all of us are pagans until God reveals his glory to us. So don't get mad that we would say with Paul that Abraham was a Gentile. Not when he found God, but when God found him. It's a beautiful thing if you seek the Lord, but you will discover that if you seek the Lord, it was the Lord first seeking you. This is the truth of the matter. Abraham was just going on about his busy way and, 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 and the Lord came and tapped him on the shoulder. Isn't that how it happens, child of God? I mean, I could talk for a long time. God is the one doing the seeking. Ever since Adam and Eve, those two Bonnie and Clyde couple broke out of the paradise because they wanted to do their own thing. God was hunting them down. If God never saw Adam and Eve out, they would have been changing clothes every week because those fig leaves would have been drying up. Did he seek them? Did he seek them? And the Lord sought them and they heard the Lord Jesus walking in the cool of the day, the visible Yahweh. And Jesus was the one saying, Adam, where are you? This is God seeking sinners, not sinners seeking God. And as my elder prayed, might that be the case today that the Lord Jesus is walking among us and taps somebody on the shoulder and say, where are you? Because the only way you're going to know God is if he reveals himself to you. And this is what the text is teaching us. Now the Lord had said unto who? Abram. So now who's the one engaging in the conversation? The Lord is. The Lord loves talking to his people. Haven't y'all noticed that? The book is full of God talking to us. You ought to talk to him. You, you really ought to talk to him. And if you're not going to talk to him, just listen to him. He actually, he has more to say than you do. So do more listening than talking. But God loves to talk to his people. Notice what he says. Abraham, get thee up out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. Do you see that? Now, what is God calling him to? Works or faith? Faith. Why? Because now he is going to go somewhere that he doesn't even know where he's going. He has no idea where he's going. He's only following the Lord. And now he is called to operate by the law of what? Faith. And doesn't he get up and do it? Does he get up and do it? Now, child of God, you better give that brother some credit because I can tell you now, if the Lord told some of you today, you got to get up and you got to move to Afghanistan or you got to move to Gaza. You would go around and get 10 counselors trying to figure out whether the Lord was talking to you or not. You, would, you didn't even respond until you got to your 10th counselor. I'm trying to wonder whether or not the Lord talking to me. Abraham just got up and left because Abraham believed God. This is what Paul is teaching. And again, he's believing God in the context of no religious framework. No theological construct. 
No system of religious protocol. Abraham is not doing anything by way of some kind of externalism to depict himself any different than anybody else. This is just a brother from the hood about to make his way 800 miles down to the land of Canaan. Am I making some sense? And you guys have taken this journey with me before. It's been glorious, has it not? Leaving uh, Ur of the Chaldees and making it to Canaan was a long trip for that brother. And God blessed him all the way, didn't he? Because God blesses a walk of what? Faith. He blesses that. Now, it didn't mean that Abraham didn't have troubles. He did. Are we not learning that troubles are a constituent part of the development of our faith? Are we not learning that? You can't read your Bible and not know that God is going to have an admixture of challenges and difficulties to cultivate your faith. I'll put it out here for some of you now, because a lot of people don't get faith uh, uh, properly. A lot of people like to make faith a kind of static concept, a singular monolithic concept like faith is just a thing. Faith is more than a thing. It is not a kind of fixed propositional idea. Faith is an organic reality. It's just as organic as your physical life, only more. Are you hearing me? And whenever a thing is organic, use agriculture as a metaphor. Whenever a thing is organic, it starts in what form? Seed form. Okay? And that seed has to actually go into a context of cultivation. Something has to cultivate it. It has to be developed. It has to be nurtured. It has to be supplemented. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? So you must know that when we're talking about faith, if you have this very narrow concept of faith as being a mere proposition with a generic definition, you do not do faith any justice. When you and I are given faith, you and I are giving faith at the level of it being a seed. And what that means is that faith can start off very weak, very limited, very diminished. That faith will be what it is. It will be attached to the true and living God at the intuitive level because faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. But that that does not mean the moment you have faith, you're just jumping up like a lame man healed and ready to run in Jesus' name. No, Nicodemus had faith and he sought Jesus by night. Because the work of faith will draw you to God. That's the purpose of faith. Am I making some sense? Jesus came to Nicodemus. Nicodemus heard Jesus preaching. And all of a sudden, Nicodemus is coming after Jesus. And Jesus knew that he couldn't come unless his father sent him, drew him. And yet he's coming in the weakness of fear and the weakness of duplicity and the weakness of ignorance. Is he not? He doesn't even know that rebirth is the foundation for faith, not the other way around, as I will explain it to you here in a moment. But he's coming, is he not? He's coming. He's hiding, precarious. He's he's operating subterraneally. He's not in the public. He's not because his faith is not strong. And that's how some of us are. Our faith is not strong enough for us to stand up and deal with some of the south winds or obstacles that come at us. It doesn't mean it's not faith. Your faith and mine, our faith has to be cultivated. And sometimes it will operate brilliantly in certain contexts and we'll think, boy, my faith is strong. Sorry, just hold on. Because once it gets shifted to another context, it shows itself inadequate 
to meet the need of that context. And here's the other discipline around faith I'm going to give you. If you have a concept of faith that points to you as the grounds of glory, your faith is wrong. The goal of faith is to humble you so that you don't trust in yourself, but trust in the true and the living God. This is what pleases God when his children trust him. Okay, so it's critically important under point number one. He found that he was called of God. I love this. He was called of God. I'll show you. Look at verse two. Look at verse two. We're going to walk this through. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be what? Can God lie? Can God change? Can God fail? Did he do what he said? And this is what Abraham came to understand too. Not only did God reveal himself to Abraham in the proclamation of the word, in the person of Jesus. Again, I want to establish that Abraham knew Jesus. Did Abraham know Jesus? The Bible is explicit about that. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He knew Jesus because Jesus is the visible Yahweh. He's the mediator between man and God. You're never going to know the father apart from the son. And how much labor is this mediator putting in walking to and fro through the earth, calling people to Jehovah? This is the Lord Jesus. This is how he works. Abraham knew Jesus. I love this, that, the place that I'm going now. Notice what subpoint B says. He found that he was called to do what? Believe God. Now, you got to understand that what's going on with Abraham is that Abraham is being told by God every day, you got to trust me. For some of you, I want you to take the word right now, believe and and make as its synonym, a narrow synonym to trust. Trust me, because sometimes belief becomes such a sterile, pedantic term because it's used so broadly. Let me narrow it down for some of you. Believing for some of you is merely trusting God. It's exactly the same way in a relationship between a parent and a child when a child cannot possibly intellectually grasp what the parent is up to. The parent does not have to try to explain everything to the child. Child, just what? Us at the root of faith is trusting God. Now, some of us get so old and so big and so stoic and so rigid and so religious, we got to have God explain everything to us. Is that true? That's when you become that sort of adolescent child always going, why? Why? Pre-adolescent. Why? Why? Right? And a lot of times what God will tell you to do is put your why up and go back to just trusting me. That's a message for somebody. Because from chapter 12 to chapter 15, which is where we're going now, where God tells Abraham to believe him. Chapter 15, start at verse uh, 6, where God tells Abraham to believe him. Abraham was told to follow God in chapter 12. By the time we get to chapter uh, 15, Abraham has walked with God some 13 years. Abraham started walking with God at 75. You guys got that? He's late in his 80s now. Now, that's an amazing thing for God to call you out and then walk with you for some 10 years and not really say anything to you. And then right around the 13th year, 14th year, then God comes to you and say, hey, I know you got issues. Look at at verse one. I'm going to just contextualize this. Look at verse one. Notice what verse one says. Here's what God says to him. And after these things, here comes the word of the Lord again. That's Jesus. 
He's the one always hunting us down. He is the good shepherd that seeks his sheep. Now, pastor, why is he coming after Abraham? Because if you read chapter 12 through chapter 15, Abraham has had some struggles. He had a knucklehead nephew he had to get rid of. His servants are fighting in battles. Then Abraham has to fight wars to deliver his his nephew from the regions of Sodom and Gomorrah. Your walk is a walk of faith, but it's also a fight of faith. And then you do get tired sometimes, don't you? Right. Like I can tell you that from chapter 12 to chapter 15, Abraham is struggling with the mistakes he made. Because we do. We're in chapter 15 and Abraham is really wondering what's going on because the whole of the area from Mesopotamia headed down to Palestine. All of the kings know that Abraham is on the march and you know how kings are. They want to take you out if they can. And Abraham is walking by what? That means he is not taking up the arm of flesh to actually advance his purposes. He's trusting God, which means he has to rely upon God in the areas of his walk where he is in the dark. Because faith walks in the dark. Faith walks in the dark. That means he doesn't know how many soldiers out there. He doesn't know how many warriors out there. He doesn't know whether they have collectively gathered together to catch him at a watering hole and take him out or not. And I know some of you, y'all faith is so strong. You never had that problem. But some of us, we go to bed at night saying, Lord, you got to keep a brother. You got to keep a sister. You really do. Because I don't know how many enemies I have made in your name. And you know, PJ is pretty... Uh, notoriously known in the Bay Area after 26 years of ministry. People don't like what I preach. I can tell you that now. And they would love to take me out. And I have to trust God every day. <laughs> I really do. I really, I'm just letting you know. I wake up every morning and say, I'm still alive. That's what John Huss said. He says, there's a, the, the preacher of the gospel is a man that's happy to be alive every day. Because you see, historically, they kill gospel preachers because the gospel message destroys human boasting. So Abraham is serving God as he's making his way to the uh, promised land. And you know what God knows? God knows when you and I are fearful. Now, notice the goodness of God in this text. It's a long introduction, but it's necessary because if you don't know Abraham, you need to know why why Paul is pulling him to the witness stand first. Paul is putting Abraham on the witness stand for the glory of God first to demonstrate that Abraham only believed God. Are you hearing me? And he believed him through difficult things. And here's what it says. And these things and after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And I love that. I've taught you this before. When you understand the book of Job, sometimes God can't get you in the sermon. You come here in your head all distracted by a thousand things and you leave and say, man, that wasn't a good message pastor brought. But your head was cluttered up with 15,000 different secular things. The other brother said that was the best sermon pastor ever preached in his life. (laughs) Don't blame me on you not hearing from God. Because if your ears are clogged by the cares of this life, the word of God will be choked out. But here's what God will do because he has promised to keep you. He did. He promised to keep you. He says, I'll catch you when you're by yourself. You know how you clown when you're hanging out with people? 
But God will catch you when you're by yourself. He'll catch you in the car. He'll catch, he'll catch you on the BART station. He'll catch you at the bus stop. He will definitely catch you when you are in vulnerable situations. You know how you know you just need God to be there when you're in the stupid place? You're in the stupid place. Nobody knows the stupid place but you and God. It can be on the cell phone just to help some. It can be on your computer, the stupid place. And then when you find yourself in that lone country in the stupid place, you really need God to be there, don't you? And it's a beautiful thing when God speaks to you and say, I'm still here. You better get out of here because they coming after you. God gives you warning, does he not? Doesn't he give you warning? And this is what's going on with Abraham. So I just wanted to contextualize and listen to what he says. The Lord came to Abraham in a vision, in a vision. And this is what Job says. Sometimes God got to get you when your body is at its most comatose state. And that's when you're asleep. God will speak to you in your sleep, child of God. When you won't listen to him when you're awake, he'll speak to you in your sleep. Yes, he will. He will trouble you. He'll give you dreams, give you revelations. He'll have dragons chasing you. Because God is the God that meets you in your wake state and in your sleep state. He really does. In a dream, in the visions of the night, when men go into their deep sleep, Then God opens their mind and seals his instructions in them. And when they wake up, they come to discover that God is calling them out of those complex, deviant pathways that they're going down. And he grants them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. Am I making some sense? All right, let me keep going. The first thing he said to Abraham in the vision was what? Fear not which means Abraham was struggling with fear. I'll teach you another thing about it, that you get these lies in different churches, that fear and faith are mutually exclusive. Have I taught you that that could never be the case? Haven't I taught you? It could never be the case that at the time that you are fearing, you are not also not trusting or trusting God. It can never be the case that as a child of God, when you are operating in fear, you are not also operating in faith. I'm going to say it one more time and build it out for you. It's not possible to be a child of God and have the incorruptible seed of the word of God in you. The ground of your fundamentally new nature expression is knowing God and trusting God. Is that right? But can you trust God at the same time you are fearing circumstances? The answer is yes. I've told you this before. I'm not going to give you the whole chapter. Read it for yourself. David knew it. I'm going there. David knew that there were times when his life was in danger. His mortal life was in danger, not only from enemies without, but from enemies within. His own children were trying to take him out. And don't tell me that David wasn't saying, Lord, I am afraid. At what time I am afraid, I will trust you. You see what I mean by a juxtaposition of two antinomies? You can be fearful and trusting at the same time. In fact, you have to. You just have to. And that's because you're not sovereign. You're not God. You don't run the universe. You don't control all the affairs of the event down to the microorganic world. You don't have that much power. So where you and I are out of control, often fear will be there. Y'all haven't figured that out yet? 
Right, you are saved as, as, as Peter. You're saved as Peter, but there are some days when you are fearful, anxious, and operating out of trepidation. That's because you're not in control. That's because your faith is not perfect. It's important to know that, child of God. If you make an idol out of your faith, we were just talking about this, you displease God. God does not give you faith as a substitute for him. He gives you faith in order that you might attach yourself to God as the grounds of your constant hope. Even when I am in a hopeless state, I'm hoping in God. Those are paradoxes. As you see, there's a hopelessness in the framework of my intellectual limitations. I don't necessarily know how it's going to work out. It doesn't even look like it's going to work out. And if I'm, if I'm leaning on my own understanding as a child of God, I might conclude, boy, I'm in trouble. And be inclined to do something that constitutes hopelessness. But then God shows up and says, this is not a hopeless situation with you. What's impossible with men is possible with God. Those again, those tensions have to be understood, child of God. And and I'm talking about Bible based Christians don't lie on God. Be ready to be honest about your faith. Sometimes your faith is nothing today. Not even worth talking about. Am I making some sense? No, I'm not. (laughs) Let's not talk about my faith. Let's talk about Paul's faith. Let's talk about Hannah's faith. Not mine, because today I'm in a bad situation. But see, even when you do that, faith is operating because I told you faith demands humility. So notice what he says. He says to Abraham, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Preach, preach, Lord Jesus, preach. I am your shield. I am the one that covers you. I flake you, Abraham. I watch you on every side. That's amazing. Now, does Abraham, con- uh, does Abraham conceive this? Does he embrace this by works or by faith? He has to believe that by faith because he can't see the shield, but the shield is there. The covering is there. The protection is there. And this is why you and I are called to walk by faith. And faith is always rooted in the what? Promises of God, the precepts of God. God said to Abraham, I'm your shield. That should give Abraham some confidence to keep it moving, shouldn't it? He can imagine now that as he's walking towards Canaan, the angels are guarding him. The angels are encompassing him all about. As David said in the Psalms, the Lord encompasses the saints about with his angels. Do you believe that? Of course we do. Because we walk by what? And not by what? We walk on the basis of the promises of God. And this is where you and I have to constantly supplement our faith with the word of God. Your faith will be weak to the degree that it's not constantly being supplemented by the word of God. Because the word of God are the promises of God. The word of God are the promises of God. How much does he love me? He tells me how much he loves me. And he calls me to respond to that love by faith. I am your shield and your exceeding great what? Yes. How gospel-centered is that statement? It is so richly gospel-centered. What Abraham is being told by God is, Abraham, don't get caught up in any of the materialism that will come your way. Abraham, don't get caught up in any of the temporal successes that are going to come your way. Abraham, don't get caught up in this worldly glitter or praise of men or material success because I'm your shield 
and I am your reward exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that you could ask or think. Now, when the soul gets a grip on that kind of proposition, you become released from the cares of this life. But it still has to be constantly what? Cultivated. Because faith is organic. Are you hearing me? All right, so under point number C, since we've seen that Father Abraham found something, he found that God called him. He found that he was called to believe God. I love this. Believe God to the extent that Abraham had a reputation. Do you know what that reputation was? He was the friend of God. He was the friend of God. Look at Second Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. I need to put this down before we deal with our last point on point number one. So, How magnificent is it to have a relationship with God even in all of your foibles? One of the things I want to do in the message today is strip you of a false hagiographic interpretation of Abraham. Pastor, explain that. Okay. Hagiography is when you do a biographical on someone and you take out all the dirt. Only a couple people understand that. Only a few of us went to college here. You know, plagiarism is going on all over the place. We talked about that, right? Hagiography is when you take a person and you strip them of all of the human idiosyncratic behavior patterns, inconsistencies, even maybe gross sinful lapses in their life. You want to write a book about them where they're just, you know, making their way, escalating to the heights of their success. They have no dips. So I told you, we all operate out of a sin curve. Have I taught you that? That's because you're a sinner. And, and some people write books about people and it's like, they ain't never did nothing wrong. But that could not be true of but one person. And therefore, my point to you is this. Don't take even the Bible people and paint them in a way where you don't give the whole composite. Because now you're committing not only potential plagiarism, but you're modifying, you're distorting the fact. And that doesn't glorify God. Does God grant the use of men and women whose faith is weak, whose faith sometimes is impotent? Does God grant the use of men and women who sometimes their behavior embarrasses us? Yes. Yes. You read the saints. Uh. Eve was an embarrassment. Do you understand that? That was an embarrassment to have the most auspicious and impeccable scenario and surrounding and blessings of a paradisio uh, environment. And you had Jesus as a direct person with whom to talk to. And then you let some snake, I told you before, sell you your own vacuum cleaner. That's an embarrassment. But she's still a child of God. Do you understand that? I can name you a whole list. Read the book of Hebrews chapter 11. It's filled with sinners saved by God's grace who were contradictions in themselves. And you are too. So don't lift them up and make them so holy that you actually do not glorify God because the law of faith glorifies God, not men. All right, so it's important to capture it. Notice what the chronicler, chronicler said. Are you not our God? who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and you gave it to the seed of Abraham, who is your friend, what? That's amazing. 
Abraham was known to be a friend of God. James put it the same way in the book of James chapter two, verse 23. Abraham was a friend of God. Now, child of God, please listen to me. Abraham made some mistakes, did he not? Serious ones. He was still a friend of God. I'm telling you, you can be a friend of God in spite of your mistakes. In fact, it has to be that way. And this is what Jesus said to the 11 men that he used to start the New Testament church. John chapter 15. Do you remember? I no longer call you doulosses or slaves. I call you friends. And I'm calling you friends because I'm letting you know everything that I'm up to because you guys will be the ones laying the foundation for sinners to come to know my daddy 2,000 years hence. And here we are, men and women who believe God because of 11 men. If you walk with them, you might be ashamed at some of the things they did. I can start with Peter and I can go way down the list and then I can come to you and you can come to me. And we can go, you know what? I'm a little embarrassed at him, but God's not. God's not. God knows how to redeem our foolishness and use it for his glory. Am I making some sense? So it's important to know that Abraham found that he was called of God. He was called to believe God. And subpoint C, finally, he found God's promises to be what? So beautiful when God comes through. Isn't it wonderful when he comes through? Listen to Isaiah 51, verse 1 and 2. I'm just walking you through the Bible because I know you don't read it during the week. Notice what it says. Isn't it wonderful when God comes through? Is it true? Right. And we need God to come through. We need to we need God to come through. I'm not just talking about come through and opening up the scriptures to you. I'm talking about you need God to come through in your life. You need him to show up in your life. You need him to open doors. You need him to give you advancements. You need God to sustain you. You do. You need God to come and pick you up when you knew, felt, and were sure that this was it. You could never make it again. You need God viscerally. You need him practically. You need him in a real concrete way. Listen to what Isaiah said, listen to me, ye that follow after righteousness, that there is the nomenclature of saying we know God and we're pursuing the God of righteousness. It's really about the Jews, okay? Listen to me, ye who follow righteousness. Do what? Seek, seek ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock from whence you were hewn and, and the hole from which you were digged. There you go, child of God. That was your origin. Did you know that? You came out of a rock and a hole. The pastor, I don't understand that. Well, just keep reading. Look at verse two. Look at verse two. Look unto who? Abraham, your father. And unto who? Sarah, that bare you. For I called him alone and blessed him and did what? Just like he said. So what God is telling the people of God in that context to do is go back and look at where Abraham was and where Abraham is now. Look at how I called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and made of him a seed as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of heaven. Did God do for Abraham what he said he would do? That's exactly right. And since Abraham is the father of all the faithful, including you and me, we are often called to go look back at the origins of the walk of faith and see how God kept them to be confident that he would keep us too. That's why you got to read your Bible diligently and carefully because you'll lie about yourself. I'm getting ready to go to point number two. We ain't going to be here forever, so I won't torment you that long. But you will lie about yourself. 
You will lie about yourself. You'll lie and tell people you're better than you are. But you're not. You're worse than you are. And you don't even know that. But, but so, so do you understand what I meant by earlier when I said the law of faith is not something that we easily hold on to because we're so caught up in our own narcissistic self-reflection that we actually think what people think about us is the most important thing. So we put on forms, we put on shades, we put on, you know, avatars, we put on projections of things that are not true. And if you don't do it to anybody else, you'll do it to yourself. We have a hard time Keeping it real. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we look so bad. This is why we're dealing with the man in the cage and everybody want to act like they in the cage. You're not in the cage. You're in the church. You're sitting right here. You're not in the cage. But we know we could be in one, couldn't we? We could be in a cage separated from God completely if we keep listening to ourselves. If we keep lying to ourselves and not really asking God, give me the grace to trust him. We could be in a cage. These cages are real things, okay? And it's important for us to learn how to walk by faith. When you do, you're going to embrace humility because humility helps you remain true about what you really are. You're not all that in yourself. And this is where God shows up with his grace because he gives his grace to the humble and the humble only. Are you hearing? Again, this is, this is an antinomy at the psychological level. Listen to yourself. Listen to how you often say things that you know are not true about you. Listen to it and go, you know what? I'm not trusting God because I'm lying about me doing this, that, and the other thing. I'm not trusting God. I'm not ready to give him glory. I want some of the glory. But remember what the text told us. The law of faith excludes boasting. But that's because the law of faith allows you to see yourself for what you really are and puts your hope outside of you into someone else who has already passed the test. That's your big brother. His name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus the Christ. He's your apostle. He's your bishop. He's your kinsman. He's your big brother. He's your husband. He's your Lord. He's your savior. He's your king of righteousness. Am I making sense? It's extremely important for us to understand these things. And I say that in order that you and I might also be friends of God. Can you be a friend of God? Yes, you can. As long as you tell the truth. What did David say? David made a few mistakes, don't you think? He said, God desires truth from the inward part. So the first and most important person in your life is God. The first and most important person in your life is God. Am I making some sense? Because he'll keep you from going crazy. You know how we on the brink of going? I'm just telling you, when we start the, down the pathway of wanting to be crazy, are you ready? Now you know your cousin was Jonah. That's all that is. Now you know your cousin was Jonah. So don't, get, don't get mad. Jonah said, I'm out of here. Didn't he? I... I Jonah was loved of God and God wouldn't let him go, but he did let him run. You can run, but you can't hide. And you can be so committed to a kind of suicidal journey that you start start negative sequencing down to the depths of the sea. 
That's where Jonah was on his way to hell in the whale's belly. Am I making some sense? On his way to hell. He said it. The bars were wrapped around my neck forever. He was talking about the weeds that had him at the bottom. Now, these are all metaphors of psychological traps, descent into deep depression as a consequence of neglecting to stay near to God. Am I making some sense? Shout to God. Are you hearing me? And if it wasn't for the grace of God, Jonah would have checked out. God kept him. While he was at the bottom of the ocean, you know what he discovered? (laughs) He wanted to live. (laughs) Help, Lord, two words. And then all of a sudden, that brother started floating to the top. And that's all it takes. Abba, Father. That's all it takes. Listen to me, child of God. We got to make sure that we don't distort biblical truth. Hagiography is the idea of just wiping off all of the blemishes. Making the person airbrushing. (laughs) Airbrushing it. Look, you don't need no airbrush. You're going to be glorified in a few years. You're going to be perfectly beautiful in a few years. Let them wrinkles come. Let them come. I mean, I mean, if you live to be 100 years old, why do you think you got to look like you're 19? God desires truth where? And the beauty of the Lord is in the spirit. It's in the soul. It's not in your body. I told you on Friday, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. Jesus was not head and shoulders above the rest. He was a normal brother like everybody else. He didn't walk around glowing. He had no halo over his head. He was not exceptionally handsome. He was just another dude. If he would have walked in here, you wouldn't know him at all. He came unto his own and his own did not know him. And still today, we want to kind of hagiographically paint Jesus as some tall, handsome individual. This is the insecurity of our own faith. I love the Lord Jesus because he came and assumed my nature. He didn't make me feel like I was inferior to him in his physical anatomy. He made sure that was never ever a concrete thing put into the depository of scripture. We speculate about him and you need to stop. Am I making some sense? You need to stop. No man has seen God at any time. And the way the son reveals him to us is not by his physicality, but by his character, conduct, purpose, will, and doing. This is how we know who Jesus is. See what I'm getting at? Uh, Hollywood does a job on us, doesn't it? It does a job on the saints. All right, let me move on to point number two. Let me move on to point number two, the blessed reward of righteousness by faith alone. This is what the Hebrew writer says over in uh, the the writer to the Romans says in chapter four. Now, starting at verse um, uh, verse five and six. Notice what it says. I'm starting. Let, let me start back at verse four. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We can be here a long time because the theology underpinning this simple terminology 
is profound because what it's speaking to is God setting up a system by which righteousness, which is always the totality of a work accomplished and therefore declared to be so. When righteousness is declared, when God declares a thing or a person righteous, it is that God has seen the totality of their conduct and has approved of it to the degree that there wasn't one blemish in it, one violation of God's law, one erroneous application of the precept, one distortion of God's truth. Please listen to me carefully. When God declares a thing righteous, he sees it as having met the standard of his own character, his own nature, and his own doing. For a person to be called righteous is a magnificent supernatural declaration. You need to work that through. Again, people don't understand righteousness. Righteousness is the declaration of perfect and total and varied obedience to all of God's law. When a man or woman is called righteous, it's because from the beginning of their life to the end of their life, God has not seen in them one deviation from biblical truth. Did y'all hear what I just stated? So, oh man, I didn't know that's what righteousness meant. Yes, that's what it means. Righteousness is always whenever God measures you, you line up perfectly with God's precept. Did y'all get that? That's why there's none righteous, no, not one. Stay with me. If, in fact, there's none righteous, no, not one, and now our conscience can breathe because we know whoever it is that's meeting that standard is not me. Whoever it is that's meeting that standard by which God declares you righteous, it has to be somebody else. But it's important for you to know it because you cannot argue for the gospel if you don't know these terms. This is why people don't believe you, because you can't explain these things. Are you hearing me? And these are fundamentals to the gospel. Righteousness is the key. Remember our New Year's verse? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that worketh. To everyone that worketh. To everyone that worketh. To the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. For in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. What does that mean, pastor? You can never comprehend. You can never see. You can never know. You can never understand God's standard until you see it executed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who did no sin. In him was no sin at all. He was holy and harmless and undefiled. He was always separate from sinners. He never sinned ever in thought, word, or deed, or motive. Christ was the holy, harmless Lamb of God. It is that righteousness that is accrued to sinners by faith. What a miracle! What a miracle. What God says to the sinner is, if you have the gift of faith, it is the credit that affirms that you are righteous with God because the two correspond. One obedience, the other one affirming commitment to that act of obedience. Did you guys get that? 
It's extremely important for you to retain these things because otherwise you're not able to explain the gospel. I'm here to tell you. It'll slip off of you and you'll fall back to works religion. Here's what he's saying over in verse four and five. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the what? There's your, there's your antinomy again. Y'all caught that? Here's why Muslims in general reject the gospel. Because the Muslims hold to what is called a works righteous religion. Here's the reason why Catholics reject the gospel. Because the Catholics hold to a works righteousness religion. Y'all keeping up with me? Here's the reason why the Orthodox Church rejects the gospel. Because the Orthodox Church also holds to a works righteousness religion. Here's the reason why most people on the planet reject the gospel. Because most men think that they are right and are willing to bring to God their own good works and are trusting that God will approve of them. It simply means you are walking in unbelief. You do not believe God. Because if you believed God, you'd know that God knows you better than yourself. And if God knows you better than yourself and he tells you you are a sinner, a hell-bound sinner. And the only way to escape your condition is to meet the conditions that I bring to you. And that requires not works, but faith. Am I making some sense? Now, this is important. This is really important, child of God, because you, here's what you want to do when you are able to engage dialogue with your friends and loved ones. You want to be able to get them into the context of discussing what is necessary to be made right with God. All of the other arguments are peripheral and often meaningless, and they go down into rabbit holes of mere speculation and don't get at the heart of the matter. If you say you're a Christian and then your loved one says, big deal, ho-hum, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Hindu, I'm a whatever, and you don't go, there's a huge difference between me and you. And let me tell you what that is, and it really only constitutes one thing faith in the true and the living God, which you don't have. And let's talk about it because the consequences of you not knowing the true and the living God is that you will perish. And I don't want you to do that. So can we talk about why you believe that as a good Hindu, that everything is going to kind of work out all right when there's nothing in history that proves that to be true? See what I'm saying, child of God? Because when you and I kind of give a pass on all that stuff, we are basically saying what the proverb says. Every way of man is right in his own eyes. And the Bible is clear. There's only one way. Am I making some sense? This is the offense of the gospel. But this is what people don't want to learn and know because we don't want to offend our love. We just want them to go to hell. Happy. Feeling good. And telling us that we're lovely people. We're lovely people because we don't want to share the gospel with them. Am I making some sense? We're lovely people because we already know that the gospel has told us there's none righteous. That's a gauntlet right there. Then the gospel tells us the only way to solve that problem is through Jesus. That's another offense. Is that not right? Right. But yet God is calling us to declare his righteousness. As I'm sharing with you right now. It's so extremely important for us to get this. But believe on him that justifies the ungodly. Has God justified you? If he did, it's because you were ungodly. Not godly. Believe on him that justifies the ungodly 
His faith is counted for righteousness. Y'all got that? All right, let me work that through. I don't think you do. Point number two, sub point A. Point number two, sub point A, because I want to make sure you do understand how to understand the term accounted, 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 accounted. It is an accounting term that is used to actually create a ledger by which one thing represents the other thing, though it is not that thing itself. Faith, which is a gift of God, is actually representing a work that God did that constituted righteousness. That faith, therefore, on God's part, accrues to the person that has it, the righteousness that was done over here. Did that make some sense? This is how you create a balance on a ledger sheet. How do we create the balance between faith and righteousness? Righteousness becomes the grounds by which Faith has value because faith is able to look to that righteousness as the ground of its value system. So that if God gives us faith, what he's really doing is giving us the certificate of the righteousness that was accomplished by another. So that when God sees the faith, he sees the righteousness and he calls you righteous on the grounds of what he did for you on the premise of the credit called faith. Did that make some sense? It's important for you to get that. Your faith is not an empty contract. It's not a blank sheet of paper. It is the title deed to the perfections of Christ's obedience. It is the ground upon which Christ can now be your stand in. So that in reality, when God sees Christ, he sees you. And he accounts to you all of the blessings, the content the value, the significance, the weight, the beauty, the splendor, the power, and the reward of righteousness. This is the great exchange. This is the great exchange. Are y'all keeping up with me? I got to work this through because a lot of you guys have forgotten it. It's extremely important to do. Notice what it says under sub point A. If you work for it, God is your what? You see it? Isn't that what we just read? Look at it very carefully. This is what you got to tell your sinful friends who are very comfortable with them thinking they're going to stand before God and get the reward. Listen to what he said again over here in verse verse uh, verse four. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of what? But of what? That's exactly right. So now as soon as the person says, I'm going to get I'm going to stand before God. On that last day, and I'm going to give him all of the list of everything I did. And God's going to look and he's going to say, good, very good. And then God has to pay me because of my obedience. Isn't that what the text just said? God has to pay me. He's a debtor to my works. That makes sense. It's absolutely true. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The law says, if you obey every precept of the law, you shall live. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So the man or the woman that says, I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to I'm going to have God approve of me by my good works. You are telling God he's a debtor to you. Some of y'all get it. See, the rest don't. See, if you if you if you work for a company at the end of the week, you have accrued working hours. Your boss is a debtor to you. Is he not? 
And God will be a debtor to you if your obedience, if your conduct merit righteousness so that at the end of your life, you get to give God all of the hours you put in. And God now has to pay you righteousness and you will get to glory in what you did. But we already have heard it in the opening argument of the apostle. We've already heard it in the opening argument of the, uh, the apostle. Do you remember it? By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. We heard it already. Where is boasting then? There is none. So you are thinking that when you stand before God, he's going to smile on you. Say, you know, I knew you were coming. I got a check ready for you already. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 11. I love the way Paul puts it. Learn this now. This will contextualize this glorious proposition that you have uh, have heard before quoted. This is in uh, this is in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 34 through 36. Now, listen to it. Some of us have quoted this many times. I want you to hear it. Give me a few more minutes of your time. Listen to what God says about any creature that he makes that thinks that he can negotiate with God on the grounds of his intrinsic obedience. For who had known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you see it? Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one has known the mind of the Lord intrinsically and ontologically. God is different than all of his creatures. Do you know that? Please stay with me for a minute. The angels don't even know the mind of God. Job made it very plain. Even the holiest of angels are nothing but pitiful, filthy creatures in the sight of him whose holiness is excellent. Stay with me. Angels are not omniscient. Angels are not impeccably righteous. They are inclined to sin and rebel just like you and I. Am I making some sense? The the distance between God's impeccable omniscience and angels is the distance of infinity. How much more so you and I who have been made a little lower than the angels? Who are you that's going to get up to God's elbow and say, God, I got something to tell you that you don't know. (laughs) Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who will say me and God think so much alike? I know what his next move is. See, only the Lord Jesus has fit that bill. I and my father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. No man has seen God at any time. He who dwells in the bosom, in the heart of God, he hath declared him and declared him perfectly. This is what makes Jesus deity. It makes him God because him and the father are equal in nature. The mind of the father is the mind of the son, is the mind of the Holy Ghost. These three operate in one. Am I making some sense? Everything else is a creature and inferior to God. No creature will ever come to God and say, God, let me help you. The Lord, I mean, who hath, made, who hath known the mind of the Lord or who has been his what? This is called a double Hebrew in the construct. This is what we call an exegetical. The first line is the proposition. The second line brings clarity to it. You got it? That's why I gave you that little kind of spill on it a moment ago. If you have the mind of God, you can sit at the table with God and talk in a way in which God benefits from you. And that is nothing but blasphemy. So now listen to what it's saying. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Verse 35. Here it is. Watch this. Or who has first given unto him? And it shall be what? It shall be what? Paid back. That's the term. Paid back. Now, if God tells you, if you obey all my law, 
Keep it perfectly. You get to come to me at the end of the day and I have to recompense you. I have to pay you back. Y'all got that? I have to pay you back. Now, may I say this as I move on? All of us are doing things worthy of recompense. Only the recompense is the wrath of God because what we're doing is sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. Now we have changed the whole equation, have we not? Because the equation is around gifting, not rewarding. If a man obtains eternal life, it's the gift of God. It's not the recompense of his obedience. I'm making some sense, right? It's extremely important because two things that God is going to make sure the creature does not do is that he obtains righteousness by his own good works and thereby thereby glorify himself because you would have wherewith to glory. Out of these eight billion people on the planet right now, you live the most wonderful clean. You don't eat pork. You don't smoke. You don't drink. You don't cuss. Except in your mind. And you know God don't mind, you know, every now and then you get a little just... So you see how your scale is sliding? Again, we're back at the hagiography, right? We are, we're, we're airbrushing our obedience. This is how deceitful we are when the gospel does not keep you grounded in the reality that every second of the day you need Christ's righteousness. The point B, Christ alone worked for this righteousness. Y'all got it? We already know now. I I love it. Jesus comes into the world and we don't have much about his life, but we see him when he comes into his adult status. In Matthew 3, he comes to the waters of what? Baptism. Now, sinners are supposed to come to the waters of baptism. Now, righteous men. And remember what John the Baptist said to Jesus. Why are you coming here? You're not a sinner. The waters of baptism are for who? Sinners. And you know what Jesus says? Suffer it to be so, John, for it behooves you and me to fulfill all righteousness. Now, let me help you with that. What Jesus did when he entered into the water, he was baptized He was buried. He was raised again out of the water and it became an emblem of the perfections of his work symbolized in the baptism of his obedience to God, both actively and passively. When he went into the water, he didn't go into the water for himself. He was not a sinner. I was. When Jesus went into that water, he went in for PJ. When he came out of that water, he came out of the water for PJ. When he went into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil and passed every test, he passed it for PJ. When when Jesus obeyed God's law, he obeyed it for PJ. When he died on the cross, which we will celebrate in a few weeks, he died for my sins. When he went into the grave, he was buried for my iniquity. When he rose again from the dead by his resurrection, he justified me from all things from which I could not be justified by the works of the law. He did it for me. Can you own that, child of God? Can you own it? Can you own it? You must own it. You must roll with Jesus. You got to roll with Jesus. I love the way Isaiah put it in Isaiah chapter 32, verse one. Listen to it, because really what we're about to do now is deal with David's sort of overture of this very celebratory contemplation that we're engaging in. And, And this is a celebratory gospel, is it not? 
Don't we celebrate the fact that God loved us enough to do for us what we could not do for ourselves? What love of God is this? That he would do for us what we could not do for ourselves and do it in a spectacular way. No wonder sinners are happy. Sinners don't have a reason to be happy, but we are. Sinners don't have a reason to be happy. Sinners should be miserable. What wonder, what wonder is this? A happy sinner. If that's not a paradox, I don't know what is. What wonder is this? A joyful sinner. A hopeful sinner. A gracious sinner. A loving sinner. That's a paradox. Sinners don't get to own all that unless there is a stand in righteousness given to you by faith. Now you can jump for joy because if God give it to you, if he gave it to you, no one can take it away. You better be whole. You better be whole. A king shall reign in righteousness. What is his name? Can I tell you he's reigning right now? He's reigning in our worship service right now. He sent down a third person to open heaven for some of y'all to see him high and lifted up, seated on the throne of his glory, high and lifted up in the perfections of his his obedience, high and lifted up. The father's put him on his throne and the throne is not only in heaven, but it's in my heart. And it should be in your heart right now. This is why Zion rejoices. This is why Zion rejoices. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the city of the great king. And what you hear in Zion is shouting and rejoicing because the Lord is good to his people. Now you are a walking Zion. Behold, a king reigns in righteousness and his princes shall rule in what? That's you and me, ladies and gentlemen. And the rule is this book. And the judgment is this. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you get it? All right, let's move on to our other final subpoint under point number two. Christ alone worked for this righteousness. Please know it. And we obtained it only by what? Faith Faith where? All right, so I just need to put that, I need to put it down. Faith is the subject. In is the preposition. Him is the object. Faith is the subject. In is the preposition. Him is the object. Like a lot of people have faith. But if it's not in him, your faith is vain. Did y'all hear what I just stated? It's faith in Christ. That constitutes you to be in him what God sees in him. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's very clear to me. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God hath made him to be what for us? God placed every one of my rebellious transgressions upon the holy, harmless Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God bore my sins on the cross. That's what that Friday Calvary night will be about. That's why you want to bring everybody out because the Holy Ghost knows how to get a hold of his people and remind them that the payment was paid. You ain't got to try to come to God on the last day with a payment, with a, with a pay stub or a ledger of obedience. Somebody has already obeyed. All you need to do is come with the credit slip called faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. 
Am I making some sense? It's extremely important for he hath made him to be sin for us. See those two words for us. I've been sharing it with you for me, but it should be for you too. How many is it for you? How many is it for you? Don't be ashamed to declare it. Christ died for me. He died for me. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made. What? That's crazy. So when you go around talking about I'm the righteousness of God, you better not forget those two last words. We're on to point number two. I want to close out on point number three. Uh, yeah, thank you, Angela. Uh, point number three in our outline. Did y'all get so far what I'm talking about? All right, let's meet David briefly. Let's meet David briefly so we can go home. I love this. The Apostle Paul believes that he is actually engaging in a, a courtroom uh, uh, argument for God's glory as it's summed up in the person of Christ. He has brought Abraham to the table. Abraham will come back. We'll pick him up because we got to close out chapter four with Abraham's story. We just carved out a little bit today. But now notice what he says about Jesus's millennial granddaddy, our father, rather, over in verse six, even as David, whenever you see that little construction, even as is what we call a uh, parallel conjunction. Even as is like in the same way it was with Abraham, so it is with David. Y'all ready? Notice what he says. Even as David also described the what? The what? Oh, how blessed you are, child of God. How blessed you are. How blessed you are. Only saw a few hands raised up in this place today. I wish it was every hand. How blessed you are. How blessed you are. How blessed you are. If God has smiled on you in Jesus, how blessed you are. And think about what he had to do to be a blessing to you. And you can't just raise your hand and say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And I cannot be cursed because God has blessed me in Jesus Christ. I'm so blessed that I cannot not be blessed because I'm in him. And Jesus is the epitome of my blessing. God, I'll I'll let the angels know how blessed I am. How blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the true and the living God. Bless your holy name, O God. Bless you in the heavens. Bless you in the earth. Bless you in the sea. Bless you in the land. The Lord is worthy to be praised and exalted for his blessings in your life. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. God is worthy of it. He is worthy of it. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Call him blessed. Call him blessed. Lord, you are a blessing to me. You are a blessing to me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will raise my hand in the sanctuary of the Lord. I will praise him with hands lifted up forever and ever. It's funny because David taught me that. (laughs) King David is the worship leader of the people of God. He taught me that. I'm not too proud to raise my hands. Just not. Now they have to be holy hands. And that has to be attributed to you from God. Holy hands are connected to holy hearts. And holy hearts is the work of God. And if God has made you holy in Christ, you can lift them hands. 
since he lifted up himself to save you. That's right. What a lot of people don't know is that the angels are in the sanctuary watching. Y'all don't know that? The angels, the angels are always watching this spectacle called the worship of sinners. Look at those sinners gathered together in Jesus' name and celebrating something that he did 2,000 years ago, something you never saw. Something you never saw. And we gather every week. Sometimes some of us are crazy enough to gather two, three times a week. And some of y'all are smart enough to stick your face in your television and watch us when you're not here. And you don't know, you don't know when your card is going to be pulled and we're going to be out of here. And you don't know that if you praise him now because you know the gospel and you understand where you are in Christ, in a picosecond, you will go from worshiping on earth to worshiping in heaven and there won't be a change. There will not be a change. What we do here, we'll do there. That's why we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. See it? Yeah. This is what David is saying. I love what he's saying. We're going to, I'm just going to read it and close down and we'll pick up, pick up next week. I love the fact that the apostle has brought David to the courtroom stand of our conscience. Because see, if, if God can save David, he can save you. You understand that? And David's going to get up there and say, I love the Lord. <laughs> he's going to say, I love the Lord because he heard my cry. I waited patiently on the Lord and he delivered me out of all my troubles. The Lord took me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a solid rock. That's what he will say. The Lord's on my hiding place. So, so David is coming to the courtroom to let the world know that God saves sinners. See? I love it. And then he's the millennial daddy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus loved him some David too, defended David, quite frankly. Listen to what it says here. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness apart from works. That's what I spent this whole hour and 20 minutes explaining. God imputed to us Christ's righteousness. And we didn't have anything to do with it at all. Is that good news or what? These are the fundamentals of the gospel. You should know these. You you shouldn't be five years in the Lord and this stuff be strange to you. You've been wasting time. This is year 2024. Get off of your lazy tail and learn your Bible. Stop it. Stop it. You need to get back into the word of God. You need to be studying. You need to have your eyes in that book. You need to be praying. You need to be fellowshipping with the saints. You need to be under good teaching so that you can redeem the rest of this year and not be worse for it next year because of your laziness. You don't have nothing to do but learn about the God who loved you before you even had a being. That's all you got to do. We're done here.